Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of domestic violence and child endangerment. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sure, it was a pretty place for a wedding, but the half-mile hike from the parking to the lightkeeper's house was not fun in Louboutins. Still, Lucy soldiered on. She wasn't about to ruin her best friend's special day, and she wasn't going to let anyone else ruin it either. Which is why, when she saw the other woman dressed in white, she nearly blew a gasket. It was a small wedding, making the pale girl's tackiness even more obvious. Lucy didn't recognize her, so at least she wasn't in the wedding party. But she couldn't let this slide. She stomped past the buffet table toward the lady in white, prepared to give her a piece of her mind. The coward retreated into the house, mounting the steps and disappearing into the parlor. Lucy wouldn't let her get away that easily. She marched up the steps and entered the house, catching the woman's eye as she ducked into a room at the end of the hallway. Lucy rushed forward and darted to the left, but there was no one there. She could see the full length of the house, and there was nothing. Lucy moved back to the hallway. No one was there either. She jumped as someone came up behind her, one of the house staff. Lucy asked her if she'd seen a woman in white come this way. She appeared to have vanished without a trace, as if she'd never been there at all. The other woman gave her a small smile. Ah, she said, you've met Rue. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Hasita Head Lighthouse, an over 120-year-old establishment on the Oregon coast, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. In 1775, a Spanish captain named Don Bruno de Jesita made his way north from California on covert orders from the Queen of Spain herself. The Spanish had considered all of the Pacific Northwest more or less claimed when they colonized California, but it was his job to investigate and repel encroachment by the Russian and British empires. But the Oregon coast is treacherous. Racked by wind and waves, Hasita's ship narrowly escaped destruction by violent storms and rocky shoals. As the sky cleared, they sighted a cliff overlooking the sea, a desolate place, but open to the sky. The Spanish named it Hasita, after the captain that somehow got them through it all. Today, the majesty and danger of the location is still hard to deny as nearby Coos Bay and Newport have become part of more heavily trafficked shipping lanes, Oregonians campaigned for a lighthouse to be built in the area. Construction began in 1892, but Hasita Head's remote location made it difficult to get building materials up to the site. 
Frequently, timber would be lashed to rafts and dumped into Cape Cove for the tide to push it ashore at Hasita Head. The lighthouse began operation on March 30, 1894. Isolation and sparse conditions presented new challenges, some of which resulted in death. From the top of the lighthouse, the water looked like a sheet of stained glass with sun shimmering through it. With the lovely view, it was easy to forget how dangerous the lantern catwalk could be. But Rue's three-year-old daughter, Cora, refused to care. Her small hands gripped the railing tightly, only because Rue had insisted. The little one was entranced with the water, eyes as big as saucers as she giggled to herself. She was in a world all her own, lost to the fast ocean. Rue was the type of person who could see every possible way things could go wrong. The railing could fall. Cora could lose her footing, slipping through the child-sized gap below the metal bar. There was a bit of land before the sheer drop into the sea, but the 50-foot fall from the platform to the ground was more than enough to end a life. The railing was a protection measure for a lightkeeper, not a lightkeeper's child. But even so, she couldn't deny her child the simple pleasure of taking in nature. She laced her fingers over Cora's on the railing and pried her away gently. Cora allowed herself to be carried by her mother, but the little girl's eyes kept darting back to the water below. Cora was like her father in that regard. Owen had been so excited by the prospect of the assistant lighthouse keeper job that he'd accepted it immediately. Rue had raised her concerns about safety, but he'd already been seduced by the ocean. She recited rules to Cora daily to keep her safe. Never go to the lighthouse alone. Always hold the railing. Cora nodded her head along to the words, but she was just a child. Children forget. Rue didn't know why Owen didn't take the danger more seriously. Their oldest, Ruth, had fallen on the rocks when she was only a little older than Cora was now. Some part of her dreaded her daughter's upcoming birthday. She couldn't help feel that something was about to happen, as if the date was cursed. Owen would reassure her in his usual way. It was painful. It would always be painful. But little Ruthie had had so much joy. She wouldn't want her family to suffer. Ruth tried not to resent his ability to be happy. She succeeded most of the time. She led Cora down the winding staircase. Her daughter tried to stop at the small window that faced the Pacific. She was too short to reach, and she strained on her tiptoes to see through. Rue didn't like the wistfulness in her daughter's eyes, the way the ocean seemed to call to her, in words her mother could never understand. The family settled in for dinner. Cora begged her father to tell him what she called storm stories, retellings of the many times Owen had to ascend the light as the waves crashed and thunder roared. He obliged, offering comical voices for the rolling clouds and the restless sea. Cora squealed with delight. He loved these moments, and Rue loved that he loved them. She just wished Cora didn't enjoy them quite so much, 
didn't want to play at being a mermaid or a sailor at every hour of every day. Neither Cora nor Owen could swim. The ocean did not care that they loved it. It would consume them all the same. Rue slept fitfully through the night. Her bed turned into the turbulent seas, ripping her farther and farther away from her family. Her skirts weighed her down. No matter how hard she fought against the current, the shore only shrank on the horizon before her. She gasped for breath. She flailed her arms wildly, trying to reach that elusive lighthouse beam, hoping that someone, somewhere, would find her. But the light remained just beyond her reach. Water filled her lungs as the sea dragged her under the surface. From above, she could see curious eyes looking down at her. Cora. She peered down at her mother as if she was some strange sea creature beached on the sand. Rue opened her mouth to beg for help, but only bubbles came out. Cora caught them in her hands, giggling, calling, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Rue opened her eyes. Her lungs were sore, as if she really had been fighting against the ocean all night. But there was no water here. There was only the straw mattress beneath her back. She sat up. The soft rotation of the Fresnel lens's light played through the window, briefly revealing the small bed they'd made for their daughter. Rue's stomach dropped to her feet. There was no Cora, only rumpled blankets. Rue rose from the bed quietly and went searching around the small house. There was no bread pulled from the bread box, no stolen butter. The outhouse door lay open and empty. Rue's heart caught in her throat as she turned her eyes to the west. Through the lead window, she saw the smudged outline of a small figure on the horizon, heading toward the lighthouse. She ran outside as fast as she could, screaming for Cora, but the girl didn't stop. Her small, chubby legs tottered to the door of the tower. Rue tripped over a clump of rocks, falling to the ground. She wiped mud off her face, watching her daughter disappear inside the structure. Owen had not been in bed, so he would be at the top, cleaning and focusing the lens. Their daughter would run into his arms and everything would be all right. She pulled herself back up and followed after Cora. She called out to Owen as she opened the door, her voice carrying up the spiral staircase. She needed to know that Cora was safe, but there was no reply. The light shone above like a roaring fire. It was all too easy to picture a child caught between the burning heat and the icy ocean. Taking two stairs at a time, Rue fought the stiff fabric of her muddy gown as she pushed herself to climb higher and higher. Cora's giggle was like a crack of thunder in the night. Lungs burning and feet aching, Rue made it to the top of the structure. She called out to Cora, but the girl was nowhere to be found. The laugh that had been so loud only moments ago had all but disappeared. Rue screamed her daughter's name, standing firm against the strong gusts of wind. And then, soft, barely above a whisper next to the crashing waves, she heard a small cry for help. 
Rue ran around the platform, cold metal digging sharply into her feet with each step. She screamed for Cora to answer her, to give her dear mother a sign of where she was. She was so fixated on looking for her daughter at normal height, she almost missed the small fingers desperately clinging to the edge of the platform, dangling 50 feet up. Cora whined loudly. Rue's heart thundered in her chest. It was happening again. Desperate, she screamed for Owen, but no one answered. Rue knelt and reached down for Cora's small body, telling her it was all right now. But this was a half-truth. If the wind pushed her, if Cora pulled her down, they would both tumble to their deaths. Rue wrapped her hands around her daughter's torso and told her to let go. Cora shook her small head. Rue grit her teeth, doing her best to steel herself as the wind made her strenuous pose even more difficult to hold. She held back tears and kept her voice steady, warm. She wouldn't fall. Rue was holding her. That's what mothers did. Cora took a deep breath. The lighthouse illuminated the trail of snot going down her face. Her lip quivered. She let go with both hands, falling backwards through space for a torturous instant before Rue fully caught her weight, pulling her back up onto the platform and into her waiting arms. She held Cora close, taking a deep breath before telling her to hold tight onto the railing while she stood up. Cora nodded as Rue slowly lifted herself to her feet. But a gust of wind hit Rue as she rose. She teetered, tipping backward, having forgotten her own rule. A scream left her mouth as she fell, grasping for her child's hand. Her fingers brushed Cora's for only an instant. Then there was nothing but air to hold her as she careened downwards to the hard ground below. Wind whooshed out of her lungs. The sea raged in her ears. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't swallow. She couldn't lift her head. Gazing up, 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 she caught the smallest glimpse of Owen carrying Cora on his shoulders. Her daughter laughed with delight, pointing down to the sea below. But his gaze was fixed on her. Distant, sad, lost. Like Rue was missing. Like she belonged there with them. Rue held the image with her pushing through the pain to memorize every moment. Her lids grew heavy, and the world grew dark. Cora faded before her eyes, and Rue faded from the world. The turnover for lighthouse keepers was high in the 1890s. The remote and rocky coast was no place for families, and the isolation made the profession both physically and psychologically dangerous. The Hesita Lighthouse's first head keeper, Olaf Hansen, worked for over 15 years to make Hesita Head Light Station a real community. He arranged for the construction of vegetable gardens, a schoolhouse, and even a post office. But a small piece of history was left behind by the progress. There's an unmarked grave at Hesita Head, now overgrown and difficult to find. Some say 
It belongs to a little girl. Some say it belongs to her mother. Up next, Rue finds a new way to reach her family. Now back to the story. No one knows the true origin of the presence that seems to haunt the keeper's house and nearby lighthouse at Hasida Head. Some witnesses claim that she is an old woman lurking in the attic. Others say they've seen the gray silhouette of a beautiful woman in the halls. Others speak of the ghostly figure of a small child tottering up the hill towards the light. All we know is her name, Rue. Collected by a group of community college students who used a Ouija board while they were living and studying at the Keeper's house in the late 1970s. Rue didn't feel the wet ground beneath her feet, but she did feel the cold, clinging to the void where her skin used to be. It pushed into her, choking the embers of warmth within her as she passed from one state of existence to another. There appeared to be no true afterlife, or else Rue had not yet earned it. Yes, that must be it. She couldn't join her little Ruthie until they were a family again. She mounted the wraparound porch of the keeper's house and peered through the curtains she'd sewn a lifetime ago. Cora sat on the floor by the hearth. Her skin glowed a soft pink, and her toothy smile shone up toward her father like a brilliant blast of sunlight in a dark and stormy sky. Rue missed that warmth. She missed her nights by the fire, watching Cora build empires out of wooden blocks. A low, keening sound left her throat, matching the cry of the birds outside. Everything had been stolen from her and she could not take it back. She could only watch from the other side of the glass. Owen looked up slowly, his gaze holding hers. He grabbed Cora, holding her tight to his chest. Murmuring something Rue couldn't hear, Owen walked toward the window. Rue waved and smiled. He closed the curtains. Rage filled her body. Her husband had been a kind and just man, he would never be so cruel as to deny her the chance to be with her child. Not when she'd given up her life to save her. She rushed to the door and threw her full weight at it, over and over. The door rattled against its hinges. She screamed, but her voice mixed with the howling winds. Rue did not stop. Cora's small cries came from the other side of the door. Owen, speaking with more authority than she'd ever heard, commanded her to stop. He called her a demon. Rue's rage deepened. Her? The one who had pushed life into the world through her own strength of will? Her, who had moved into the isolated lighthouse, forsaking her parents, sisters, and friends so her husband and child could thrive? It was not Rue who was the demon. He could not stop her from seeing her child. She would have Cora again. Death would not change that. Nothing would. Rue sat on the ground. One of the small blessings of her death was that she no longer had to care for how she looked. Let her be a creature of mud and decay. She would find more sympathy from the insects than her own family. 
She waited by the door for hours. When she was certain that Owen was asleep, she opened it as quietly as she could. She paid him only a cursory glance, reassured by his discordant snoring that he would not awaken. She wasn't here for him. There would be time to turn his nightly moments of peace into terror. For now, all she wanted was her child. Cora laid in the small pallet near Owen's legs. Cora was growing quickly and would need a new bed soon, but Rude took comfort in the fact that Cora still slept in a bed of her mother's creation. She touched her hair softly, pulling strands away from Cora's forehead. The girl opened her eyes slowly, pupils shifting as she tried to focus on the spirit. Rue smiled. She whispered to the girl that it was all right. She could care for Cora now. All they had to do was go to the lighthouse. They could be together forever that way. Break the rules one more time. Tears welled in Cora's eyes. Her bottom lip jutted forward, quaking with every breath. She sucked in a big breath of air, and then she started to scream. She screamed that there was a monster in the room. Rue forced her hand to relax. It was not Cora's fault. She didn't know yet. She didn't know that Owen was lying to her. She hadn't seen how he was shutting her out of their lives. That he was the real monster. She took a step backward, giving Cora the space to calm down. But the screams had already roused Owen. He scooped Cora up and cast about the room wildly, asking for Cora to point out where the demon had come from. There was that word again. How unkind her husband had proven himself to be. How malicious and cruel. She screamed in response, her anger exploding over the house like the sharp crack of lightning. There in one instant, and gone the next. Owen stumbled backward, hitting his head against the wall. Good. Let him suffer. For no crime of her own, she'd been forced to pay this hideous cost. He should carry the weight of his sins. Perhaps if he had been at his post, this would not have happened at all. As her anger grew stronger, she felt her body stretching inside. It became firmer and larger until her head was scraping against the top of the ceiling. Owen finally saw her. He nearly fell backward. His jaw dropped and his eyes grew so wide they looked poised to fall out of his head. She snarled at him to close his mouth. No matter how much he wanted her to be a demon, she was not some figure conjured by religion. She was pain and agony made anew. A new thing he and all his foolishness would never understand. Cora started to wail. Rue wanted to comfort her child, but Owen held the girl tight to his chest. He told her to keep her head down. Just as before, he was trying to shield Cora from her own mother. She shoved him hard. His head slammed against the wall, leaving a smear of blood behind as he stood back on his feet. Her words lost their shape. An agonizing well of emotion had sprung forth from her body, howling and wailing with no beauty or rhythm. 
They were the sounds of her soul being ripped to pieces as her daughter took comfort in her husband's arms. Owen yelled that Rue was scaring their child. Rue laughed. Now he admitted that Cora was hers. Only when she was frightened did she become the responsibility of the mother. Rue stepped closer to the two. She liked the way Owen cowered before her. She reached out a finger and tried to stroke Cora's cheek softly, letting her presence shrink to its usual size. She whispered that things would be all right, but her nails bit into the little girl's skin. Deep red blood dripped down her small cheek. Owen had done this to her. He had taken all of Rue's love and destroyed it. She could only hurt people now. Cora deserved none of this. Rue fixed herself on Owen, ramming her hand through his body, searching for his heart. If he had one, she would squeeze it and rip it from his body. Owen cried out in pain, and Cora screamed. She begged for Rue to stop. Rue paused. In her doubt, she grew smaller, fading in and out of view. She could punish Owen for all of eternity, for the way he hid their little girl from her eyes, but she could not deny her child anything, even if it meant her absence. She kissed Cora on the cheek, leaving one last searing scar on her lips. Then she slipped back into the darkness where she stayed, waiting, waiting for someone who wanted her. According to the Keeper's House guestbook, a woman woke in the middle of the night to feel a weight shift in the bed. A small indentation appeared at the end of the mattress, as if someone was sitting beside her. They sat like this for hours, unmoving. The figure only disappeared at dawn. Coming up, the Hesita Head Keeper's Cottage opens up as a bed and breakfast, with some extra spectral help. Now back to the story. The 1930s ended the isolation of the Hasita Head Lighthouse Keepers. The construction of the Oregon leg of the U.S. Highway 101 made nearby Florence, Oregon only a 20-minute drive. The lighthouse was converted to electric power, which meant fewer keepers were needed to keep it running. The lighthouse became fully automated in 1963, phasing out the role of the keepers completely. Parts of the complex were torn down, and the last remaining keeper's house passed into the hands of the U.S. Forest Service. But that last keeper's house was also the center of Hasita Head's supernatural activity, and as the Forestry Service struggled to find a purpose for the building, Rue made her presence known. Daphne was supposed to be in the woods somewhere, counting beavers or tree rings. She was at least supposed to be outside, but she was only a first-year forest ranger, 
so they put her in charge of managing the workmen that came in and out of the lighthouse keeper's house. It was in the process of being converted into a dormitory and classroom for local community college students until it got annoying. One of the workmen, Jim, Tim, something like that, had rushed out of the attic in a hurry, muttering something about seeing a woman in white in the reflection of a window. It would have been just a laughable anecdote if he hadn't subsequently broken said window. He insisted he wouldn't return to the third floor. He could send someone out to do the repairs in a few days. Daphne came from a family of contractors, so she told him he'd done quite enough and resolved to fix it in the morning. He seemed confused by the notion of this feather-haired slip of a woman having construction experience. She reminded him that it was 1970 now. He needed to keep up with the times. The weather was bad that night. The roads closed, but Daphne had to stay on site anyway to make sure the automated lens was running correctly. She opted to stay in the house's northwestern corner, facing the Pacific Ocean as it was lit by flashes of lightning and the roving beauty of the Hesita headlight. She took out her collection of Shirley Jackson stories, laughing to herself at the image of the burly workman shivering in front of a spectral white lady who could have been her grandmother. But as much as she liked Jackson, she didn't believe in ghosts. But Shirley was just too good. Daphne read story after story, telling herself she needed to stay awake for the light, not because she wanted to read just one more page. The clock had just struck three when she heard it. A scraping above her head, like long claws tearing through the floor above. She wondered at first if some kind of animal had gotten in through the broken window. But that seemed unlikely that a raccoon would mount a freestanding structure like this in the middle of the woods. She might have been wrong, though. Maybe she would have known better if they let her learn actual forestry. The scraping interrupted her internal grumbling. It was faster now, with purpose. Almost manic. Whatever was up there knew what it wanted. And what it wanted was to get downstairs. She laughed at the irony. She wanted to be out in nature and nature was ready to come to her. It was then that she remembered the door to the attic was open, and it was in her bedroom. It hadn't bothered her before, but in the dark with that scraping, Florence, the closest town, seemed so far away. She told herself it couldn't be a wolf or a fox, nothing rabid to attack her but it would be very unlikely for a wolverine to be in the attic. But if there was a wolverine in the attic, an attack was a near certainty. The sound intensified, as if it knew Daphne was doubting it. She sprang from the bed as quickly and quietly as she could, stepping on light feet to the door. She gripped the handle oh so carefully and gave it the softest, gentlest push she possibly could. The creak of the old hinges was deafening. The scraping stopped abruptly. Daphne held her breath. Then the scraping started again, moving across the ceiling in a straight line, right for the attic stairs. 
Daphne searched for a lock on the door as the scraping got closer and closer. But there was nothing, not even a simple latch on the doorframe. As the sound reached the stairway, she shut the door. Daphne braced against it, listening intently, waiting to hear feet descending the stairs. But there was nothing. She waited and waited and waited. Finally, her adrenaline ran out. She slumped to the floor, her back still against the door, ears still searching for the sound. But all she heard for the rest of that sleepless night was the storm and silence. She dreaded going up to the attic the next morning, but her boss was going to be by to survey her progress at noon. She told herself it was first-day jitters, nothing more. Still, she climbed the stairs slowly, quietly, as if somehow the creature would forgive being disturbed if she was polite about it. Daphne poked the top of her head into the attic, only venturing high enough that her eyes peered over the edge of the opening. The early morning sun filled the room with a weak glow, but it was enough to see by. She peered into the dark recesses of the attic, squinting to look for bristling fur, claws, or teeth. She got up her nerve and called out. There was no answer. Cautiously satisfied, she climbed the last few steps, wet rag in hand for cleanup. When she looked down, Daphne expected to see a sea of broken glass, tiny shards glittering in the shadows like a night sky. But there was no such thing. The space beneath the window was clean and empty. There was no sign of shattered glass anywhere. Daphne stepped forward to investigate. Glass crunched beneath her boots. There was a small, neat pile of broken glass about three footsteps from the top of the stairs. Daphne told herself to get the job done, but as she lowered the dustpan and brush to the ground, it all began to make sense. The brush made the exact scraping sound she'd heard the night before, as if it had been swept together by helpful, unseen hands. The general consensus of visitors, guests, and occupants of the Hasita Head Lighthouse Keeper's house is that Rue doesn't mean any harm. She's helpful even, tidying up when no one's looking, moving objects back to what she believes is their intended place. The Keeper's house served as a satellite campus for the local Lane Community College from 1970 to 1995, when the Forest Service converted the building to a six-room bed and breakfast that can host up to 15 guests. Rue appears to be delighted at the influx of new people to clean and care for. Housekeepers say she straightens the linens behind them, only to leave a depression on the bed facing the bathroom, as if she's sitting down to supervise. She seems to have learned something from her harrowing interactions with the various workmen who've toiled in the attic, and she tends to avoid appearing to people who seem not to want it like the house's current innkeeper, Misty Anderson. Like any good host, Rue respects her guests' privacy. But if you do open yourself up to seeing her, beware. 
for late-night visits are her specialty, and once she's invited in, she doesn't want to leave. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Haunted Places for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>